Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Well, Neil, it may seem a little bit eccentric this week. We're, we're recording this on, uh, on, when is it, Monday the 20th of March. Yes, in the middle of the banking crisis. Middle of a banking crisis, to be talking about investors taking more risk. Yeah. But we yeah. thought we'd give it a whirl anyway. One of the things that people do is they confuse risk with volatility. OK, we'll come back to that. I thought we might. <laughs> So, in 2000, the UK stock market represented 11% of the world's stock market capitalisation, and now it represents just 4%. The FTSE 100 index, the main market index in the UK, is up 12% from its late 1990s high, and the US S&P 500 is up 186%. With performance like this, it's not surprising that great British companies are deserting the stock market either relisting in the USA or choosing to float there. And there were great lamentations recently when Arm, a successful tech company, chose to float in the US and not have a UK listing at all. But analysts said it all made sense. Arm would be much more highly valued on the American stock market. Just the latest in a sequence of big listings that haven't gone the UK's way. So we thought we'd we'd talk about what might be driving this sad state of affairs. Is it that the UK economy is just knackered or is there something more subtle that's holding us back? And we're joined to discuss this by William Wright, the boss of New Financial, a think tank that specialises in financial affairs. Now, he's the author of a paper that points the finger at Britain's three trillion pension fund industry. Once among the biggest investors in UK equities, pension funds have virtually given up on the stock market. And that's one of the big reasons he thinks UK shares are so undervalued. Welcome, William. Uh, Hello, thank you very much for having me. We're very pleased to have you. But maybe we can start with a few figures. Can you explain kind of what's happened with pension funds and the stock market since 2000? How much have they pulled out and why? Since 2000, there has been a dramatic shift in the risk appetite and asset allocation of UK pension funds. We've seen a shift in terms of In 2000, nearly three quarters of the assets of UK pensions were allocated to listed equities around the world. And that's now fallen to 27%. The decline's been even more striking in terms of their allocation to UK listed equities, where we've gone from just under half of pensions assets in UK equities, 48% in 2000, to just 6% today. And alongside that, well, where's this money gone? We've seen a massive increase in the allocation of UK pension funds to fixed income, with their allocation going from roughly 20% to fixed income in 2000 to around 56% today. So this has real world consequences. We're talking real money is moving away, being sucked out of the UK equity market. If we rewind just over 20 years to 2000, roughly 40% of the UK equity market was owned by UK pension funds and UK insurance companies. Fast forward to 2020, and that 40% has fallen right down to 4%. Yeah, it's pretty devastating, isn't it? The people who have bought shares to try and fill the gap 
haven't got anything like the firepower of the pension funds. But I would say it's worse than that, because if you look at NEST, which is the government-backed default pension, where your pension contributions go as soon as you get into the the scheme, which is which is the backup scheme. If you look at their allocation to equities of their top 20 holdings in the default fund, which is the biggest of the 38 billion, I think, they have under management, only one is in the top 20 as a British company. So it's not just the move to bonds. It is the wholesale exit from UK shares as well. It creates this vicious circle. If, if UK pensions and UK insurance companies are beginning to sell out of the UK market in a wholesale way from the late 1990s onwards, then obviously that's going to create a degree of additional pressure on valuations and it's going to reduce demand. It's going to reduce the, that, that decline in valuations. It's going to reduce the weight of the UK market in global indices. So I would summarise it by saying that the savings of the British workforce are being diverted to companies which are trying to put those businesses out of business. That's Neil's take. I want to offer a different one, which is to say, is it not the case that they face conflicting demands? They're not ultimately answerable to British companies to keep them in business, which is sort of the underlying point Neil is making. They are beholden to their own pensioners and their pensioners, basically, to the extent they want exposure to equities, have over time become (laughs) increasingly convinced that they need to have exposure to global equities, particularly in faster growing parts of the world. Is there a way that, aside from, in effect, forcing people to invest more in the UK stock market, you can basically stop that tide towards international equity ownership as opposed to the UK. You're right to say that it's not the role of government or regulators to require and force pension funds to invest in particular geographic asset allocations and say, Mm. you must invest X percent in UK equities. However, I think there are two things going on here. Firstly, pension funds, as you know, enjoy very generous tax breaks, tax relief on their investments. And I think there is certainly an argument worth exploring as to whether or not UK pension funds should have a degree of conditionality attached to the tax advantages that they enjoy, based on the fact that those tax advantages are effectively being paid for by the UK and other UK taxpayers. And therefore, there should be some minimal level of allocation investment in UK assets to qualify for them. The other thing I think that's going on is this this structural shift in in the pensions industry. What we found in this research, as the asset management industry has become more global, and as the UK pension system has become more fragmented through the creation of millions of individual pots of DC pensions and thousands of DC schemes, An investment in equities will often become a default investment through a sort of global equities vehicle. And therefore, the allocation to the UK by a UK pension fund is going to be in the order of 4 or 5% of their equity exposure. When you look at some of the pension schemes that are still very active 
inequities. And I'm thinking here, the local government pension schemes, the LGPS system across the UK is still about 55% equities. Where they have a degree of scale themselves, they tend not to outsource that exposure to a global fund. And when they do, you see their allocation drops off. So I was looking the other day, Jonathan, at the top 20 equity holdings in the Greater Manchester pension scheme. And 15 of the top 20, give or take a couple, were UK equities. Mm. Because they still have a large active scheme. They appoint managers directly themselves to run UK equities instead of outsourcing equities to a global passive fund. Mm. And therefore, they have a higher exposure to UK equities, and they are taking an active position in large Mm. UK companies. I wonder whether we could just come to the other side of the coin, which is the question of of why they have been pulling out of equities, pension funds, and whether they are doing so more than elsewhere in the world. It's a game of two halves, really, when it comes to why have they been doing this, because it's very important to stress that there are basically three components to the UK pension system. Mm. The first is private sector defined benefit pensions. They're about 1.7 trillion in value, the largest single component. They have virtually entirely withdrawn in aggregate from UK equities. You've then got two other pots of, of UK pensions. Firstly, the active funded public sector defined benefit schemes. The vast majority of that is the the local government scheme, LGPS, which across the UK is is 100 different schemes with just over £400 billion in assets. Those schemes are still open, so they are still very heavily invested in equities. They still have about 55% of their assets in equities. But one of the things which I find hard to understand is why these funds were continuing to buy long-dated bonds on ridiculously low yields. And although the redemption date might have matched their liability, there was absolutely no chance that the value of the bond on maturity would cover the pension liability. It seemed to me that the cost to the fund of saying, we're not going to buy at this price, we'll keep the money in the bank until bond prices are more attractive, seemed to me extremely low. At the bottom of the yield chart, the 20-year bond in the UK was yielding half a percent. Now, why on earth would anybody buy a 20-year bond in the UK on that sort of yield unless it was let us say, the Bank of England, who are doing it for a different purpose. Can you explain to me why they continued to do that under those conditions? No, I can't, actually. (laughs) Um, And I think part of the problem is that it's very, very difficult to understand why and how over the past five to seven years, they didn't just pause the, the, the flight from equities to fixed income, they actually accelerated right up until last year. I suspect the answer is to be found partially in the advice that they were being given. And bear in mind that one of the things I've always found striking with the UK pension fund industry is given the sums of money involved, the trustee system of overseeing so much of this money is amateur. A lot of these people are doing it on a a sort of part-time voluntary basis 
And they rely, therefore, very heavily on the advice from very clever people from the actuarial industry or from the investment consulting industry. Clever and possibly self-interested. <laughs> but potentially. And I can only think, Neil, that the other point that was being impressed upon them is that it was okay to invest in this sort of stuff because you could leverage it several times over and meet your returns. And we saw last autumn that perhaps that wasn't quite okay. Up till now, we've been talking largely about the decision-making and its impact on the wider stock market. If we turn then to look at the performance of pension funds in the UK, obviously Neil is touching on this, have UK pensioners done badly from this? Or have they basically sat in the middle of the pack? What's been going on in this market for the last 20-odd years? The UK is, shall we say, in the bottom half of the pack. It's not an outlier in terms of terrible performance. But according to the OECD data, for example, there is a 1.5 percentage point difference mm. in the 10-year annualised returns for UK pensions as a whole between the UK and the Netherlands in the 10 years to December 2020. That's a pretty big gap, I would say. 1.5% annually. 1.5 percentage point difference. Point. In the annualised return. Now, if you run that out, let's assume that those annualised returns stay constant over 30 years. That translates into a Dutch scheme being worth 50% more than a UK scheme after 30 years. That is a very, very big difference. You've just spoken to the country-based analysis. If you looked at the individual-based analysis... The one thing I think leapt out at me was that the funds which had were all at the top of your charts for the individual fund performance looked to me like people who, or funds which had invested very heavily in private equity, in those sort of leveraged investments, you know. And I'm a little bit sceptical about this sort of leveraged stuff. But it's interesting that the UK hasn't really followed a lot of those funds into private equity and, and alternatives. Is there a reason for that? It, it, it's beginning to do so. I mean, even those schemes that are closed, I mean, going back to the, the corporate defined benefit schemes, they have been increasing their allocation to alternatives, to, to private equity, to infrastructure mm. over the past 15 to 20 years, because a lot of these assets are, are a much better fit in terms of their future cash flows mm. than obviously than equities. And to, you know, they provide a little bit more potential return than fixed income. Mm. And we've also seen in the open public sector schemes that they have been increasing their exposure to these assets as well. I mean, looking through the joy of reading through 84 different annual reports of the 84 different schemes in England and Wales. <laughs> Only 84? Um, you did it, so no one else has to. <laughs> but a, a recurring theme in, in those is that actually private equity had been, in their view, one of the highest performing asset classes in previous years, and they were increasing their exposure to it. But if we agree that there are economies of scale here, and there are far too many thousands of UK pension funds, what would you do about it to try and, if you like, push them together? That is the three trillion pound question, isn't it? I mean, there are three big buckets to play with here. You've got roughly 5,200 private sector defined benefit schemes. You've got 100-ish public sector defined benefit schemes. And then you've got nearly 27,000 defined contribution schemes. 
the biggest single chunk of assets uh, in those 27,000 DC private sector DC schemes is held in master trusts and some of the larger schemes. Sorry, can you just explain master trusts? is, is So, where... so a, a master trust is a structure within defined contributions, pensions, where multiple employers pay into, uh, it's effectively an umbrella fund, if you will, and multiple employers pay into it. To Neil's question, how, how do we go about consolidating it? Firstly, I think we have to, because by not doing so, we're not only limiting the investment horizons of these schemes. We're raising the the cost of investing for all of the members in those schemes. Even if they're closed, there is going to be a higher cost to the residual members in those schemes. One of the ideas that's been talked about is that you could potentially take a scheme that is still open, a large scheme or a few large schemes that are still open and still investing in return-seeking assets rather than sort of future cash flow driven assets and use them effectively as a consolidation vehicle. A large scheme like the Pension Protection Fund itself could effectively open itself up and invite others to join it. On the public sector side, I'm sure that there was once upon a time a very good reason for Dorset, Hampshire, Devon and Cornwall and Wiltshire and Somerset all to have separate local authority public sector pension schemes. But I'm not sure that one can make a cogent argument today as to why that should be the case. But surely one of the problems is that Pension Fund A will say, well, actually, our fund's in pretty good shape. We don't really want to merge it with Pension Fund B, where we've looked at the books and we don't like the look of it very much. So actually, it's not really in our interest to get together. And that may be true in all sorts of cases. You would have that argument uh, with every single one of all 100 of the LGPS member schemes. You know, this fund is too big. This fund is too small. This fund has a different demographic. I think the answer here is to take an approach that the UK is traditionally not very good at, which is looking around the world at who does this well. and not assuming that we can copy and paste any one of the Canadian, Dutch, Swedish, Danish, Australian system into the UK, but looking at which elements seem to make sense and seem to work. I just wanted to touch for a second on the question of performance. We talked about the performance of defined benefit schemes and pension schemes in the UK versus overseas. Obviously, the performance of the stock market, relatively speaking, has been poor. I suppose one of the things which interests me is the question of to what extent is that a function or, or can one establish this causal link with the pension funds? Because clearly they've withdrawn, but their shoes have been filled by other investors, mainly from overseas. Are we saying that these overseas investors are less willing, less trusting, less prepared to see the virtues of these great British companies on the stock market than the pension funds who would pay higher prices for them? If you think of a fairly standard stock market report on any given day, I mean, prices Mm. go down when there were more sellers than there were buyers and prices go up when there were more (laughs) buyers than there were sellers. And what we've had for 20 years is is more sellers or more natural sellers than buyers. In a sort of perfect, globalized, seamless, efficient financial market, there would be no such thing as domestic bias. So the propensity of a UK asset management firm or a UK pension fund 
to invest an excess amount in its local market. But the reality of the world is that all pension systems exhibit, demonstrate a domestic bias to a greater or lesser extent. But the UK system's domestic bias has fallen away quite sharply over the past 25 years. Mm. And I think this matters because local investors perhaps perform more of a signaling service to investors from outside of the UK Mm. than they have been given credit for. Without a large weight of local investment decisions being taken in the UK market, that's going to send some fairly scrambled signals to non-UK investors. We've had quite a lot of problems here, and I'm now feeling very depressed about my pension. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought it might be worth turning to the question of what we can do about it. Is there anything we can do about it? I mean, there are three billion of these pension schemes, of which, what, two billion are defined benefit. Is there anything we can even do to get that money back into the stock market? And if not, you know, what can we do about the other trillion that's sitting around in local government and uh, defined contribution schemes? Can we pep that up a bit, as it were? You're right. The headline numbers look pretty grim. But I think that there's a whole load of things that we can do. The problem, I think, with pensions policy over the past was the cumulative impact of piecemeal policy to address this particular problem without thinking of how it would impact in the round in the longer term. I think the first thing we can do is we need to start getting more money into defined contribution pensions. So companies should contribute more. The world of pensions has been heading towards defined contribution or DC for as long as I've been writing about it, which is tragically, you know, 25 to 30 years. Oh, a long time in finance. There we go. But the, oh, yes. what we've done is, is we, we've killed off the defined benefit system for most of the UK, but we didn't put anything in place to replace it in time. And mm. while auto-enrolment, which introduced in 2012 to ensure that pretty much everybody working in the UK had access to at least a minimal level of pension, it's a lot mm. better than having nothing. But To be crystal clear, the contributions paid by employees and employers for most people in the UK today into their pensions are woefully inadequate. Yeah, to be fair to the uh, legislators, I mean, they are raising the contributions almost year by year. And I think that they couldn't have started any higher for fear of scaring the horses. and People would say, well, you're stealing all my money. How much do you think that NEST, the government-sponsored default, is part of the solution or part of the problem? I think it is part of the solution in the sense that it shows that you can create vehicles at scale that deliver similar or better returns at lower cost than going through smaller, more fragmented structures. I think the fundamental problem with with the UK system is that individual pots should be much more fungible and flexible than they currently are today. Um, And it should be so much easier to move them around into into vehicles like Nest. And the government has levers to pull. It could put qualifications on the tax relief, tax benefits for pensions if they were investing not enough of their assets in the UK. It could apply a sort of cost-based measure to those tax reliefs. But I think there's a, there is a sort of a more collective approach needs to be taken to pensions. And I think the collective approach is 
it should be apolitical. Pensions don't really work if they're just a series of individual tax-efficient savings pots, which is basically what defined contributions are today. And reintroducing a degree of collectivity into pensions, where you are sharing risk across different generations, different cohorts, you're sharing investment risk, you're sharing longevity risk. Going back to the basic principles of sort of defined benefit pensions, but perhaps accepting that a modern pension system simply won't be able to provide a defined benefit at the end of it. And the virtue of that is basically that it would encourage people to put in more money. Essentially, you're saying you're not just sitting as a, in your own little lifeboat on your own. Absolutely. You're in a big ship. Absolutely. Okay, I get uh, that. And this collectivity is a common feature. The common features running through the pension systems around the world that are rated in the annual surveys of most sophisticated, most sustainable, best pension systems the common themes running through those are scale achieved through the structure of the system mm. and this collective thread running through yeah. them like a stick of rock. I come back to my point, you have to persuade people into these much larger groupings. And I can see a lot of people thinking, no, well, this has served me very well and I don't really like that. Well, I agree, uh, but you could use a stick coercing them but I take your point about the tax yeah. I would just like to end by saying your ambition or your suggestion that we need to double our contributions is a fantasy there is no way that a government is going to take another eight percent or whatever it is out of people's take-home pay and say it's your own damn good I'm afraid they won't get re-elected yeah, Neil's always, always seeing, looking on the bright side there. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.